And welcome back, everyone, to Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. This is Steve Larchuk, attorney, healthcare advocate, and most importantly, your host. Many thanks to our national sponsor, Pair Networks, world-class web hosting and domain name registration. Learn more at Pair.com. That's P-A-I-R.com. And it's great that we are carried from radio stations, from, on radio stations, from Massachusetts to California, 13 states in all. And our podcasts are available on iTunes, and we hope you will listen and rate those to show your support. This week, a little later in the show, we will be welcoming as our guests for an extended discussion two certified registered nurse anesthetists who are leaders in the movement to reduce the role of opioids in surgery and pain management. And this is important because too many opioid addictions start with an innocent surgery where the old school thinking is to sedate quickly and kill the pain cheaply using opioids. And all too often that's where people accidentally fall into the the trap and black hole of opioid addiction. So we're going to learn there is a better way, uh, but it is still new. And we as a program, as healthcare politics, we're going to do our part to bring that message to everyone. The organization that these gentlemen have helped create is called the Society for Opioid-Free Surgery. Uh, but first, what's happening in healthcare politics, uh, Congress uh, is in turmoil with the president now playing the role of tough guy. I guess this week he's the bad cop, and he is threatening his own party and threatening to sabotage the Affordable Care Act. Senator Cruz in, of Texas just uh, did a big woe is me. Uh, he was being interviewed, and he said, look, Senate Republicans have no choice but to repeal Obamacare no matter what, or they'll look like fools. Now, those are his words. He said, we'll all look like fools. That it, it, Notice it didn't have anything to do with the right or the wrong or the sensibility of it. He just didn't want to look foolish. So the, that's what Senator Ted Cruz of Texas said. As part of the tough talk, the president said that the Democrats have no ideas other than single payer, which, as you may recall, the president used to support. He thought that was a great idea at one time. Uh, this past week, Former vice president, you know, the fellow that won the majority of votes in the 2000 election and since then has been the winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. Al Gore declared his support for single payer in the United States, and he joins many others, including many conservatives, who believe that Medicare for all is necessary and inevitable. So the momentum for Medicare for all, single payer, universal health care, whatever you want to call it, is gaining more and more support. And as it does, the usual arguments against it are beginning to fade. They just are losing their strength. And it all comes down to one argument, really, the one the president just tossed off last week without much thought. He just said, America can't afford to provide quality health care to everyone living here. Well, he's wrong. We can and if we're serious, we can even do better than that. So we're, we're going to uh, take an earlier-than-usual break. Uh, and when we come back, we're going to talk about a way that a simple change in thinking can revitalize the economy, rebuild our infrastructure, create millions of jobs, balance state budgets, put more money in the pockets of our elders, make every governor in the state deliriously happy very quickly and all at the same time. So we're going to take that short bake, break. You don't want to miss this. This is Steve Larchuk with Healthcare Politics.
As Congress struggles to make the health care system more cost-effective, local community health centers are already doing their part with a focus on prevention instead of treating illness. Studies show that close to half of people's health status is directly related to behavior. Think diet, exercise, smoking, and stress management, and only 10% is tied to health care. Yet, according to Dr. Fasi Hamid with the Petaluma Health Center, 90% of health care money is spent on treating people's symptoms rather than trying to address the causes and prevent them. You could never address it just through traditional health care. So we had to expand our ability to do so by innovating all these programs. The Petaluma Health Center handles about 150,000 medical visits a year, but it also refers patients to programs like Petaluma Loves Active Youth, which offers medical advice, exercise classes, and healthy cooking demonstrations. The health center runs a large community garden where anyone can pick the produce and hosts a weekly organic farmer's market that accepts food stamps and charges on a sliding scale. I'm Suzanne Potter. And welcome back, everyone, to Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk, and we are back. And before we took our break, I asked you to come back ready for some fresh thinking about healthcare. And as I said, with one pretty simple change in thinking, we can revitalize the economy, rebuild our infrastructure, create millions of jobs, balance state budgets, put more money in the pockets of our elders, allow working families to immediately have thousands of dollars more in their pocket to rebuild their personal wealth after being wiped out by the recession. Uh, we will make every governor in the state, in the United States, deliriously happy we can do this all very quickly and all at the same time. And if it sounds too good to be true, it is not too good to be true, but it is the path we will eventually take, and it is time now that we've tortured ourselves for six months watching the Republicans trying to repeal and replace, it's time to get to work. And here's what we have to understand before we start. I'm going to keep the answer hidden from you here just for a couple more minutes. First, understand that the single largest line item cost for state budgets across the country is Medicaid. We're talking hundreds of millions, billions of dollars, in fact, that comes out of state budgets to pay their share of Medicaid. If those states had the money to use for other things, they could decide for themselves how best to use it. Now, if you're a state's rights kind of person or you think that the state is in the best position to decide what it needs for its people, then that should really be music to your ears. Keep in mind that the Medicaid money that those states spend is not available for anything else. Second, As you know, retirees are struggling to live on Social Security, and the amounts they are paying toward their Medicare share or Medicare supplement plans or drug costs is more than many can afford. Now, imagine if they could keep that money and spend it on their household expenses and other things. That would be better than an increase in their Social Security benefits, and it would be money that they would instantly have access to. Third, If every American had the money they spend on health care premiums, deductibles, and co-pays to spend on other things, the economy would boom, just boom. So how do we do all this? Now, as I said, take a deep breath. Try not to start screaming right away. You can start, you can scream later, but try, try not to start screaming right away. Dare to be reasonable. Have the courage to consider an idea that you may have never heard before. Yeah, just because you haven't heard it doesn't mean that it's, it's not out there and it's been out there for a long time. 
Look, Congress and the president should agree to expand Medicare. Okay, that's not a new idea. To cover all Americans, that's not a new idea. But with the following improvements, no deductibles, no premiums, no co-pays, no caps, it should include all of the essential health benefits that Obamacare has for those policies. It should include a basic dental package and a basic vision care and it should include long-term care. In other words, when, when people exhaust their savings and they need to go into a nursing home, and they, right now they're going on Medicaid, look, let's, let's stop the pretense. Let's understand that it's a national responsibility. Long-term care should be included for all Americans, and we should eliminate the state share of Medicaid. In other words, 100% should be paid by the federal government. Now, let your imagination run with that for a while. Imagine that we did that. It would take a few months for Congress to pass such a bill. It would take a few months to get it squared away. If you want to make it effective a year from now, I don't care. But it, it, it absolutely can be done. It's not that complicated. Everything is already in place to let it happen. Now, imagine what your state could do with the hundreds of millions of dollars it would save by no longer having to fund Medicaid. I was talking about infrastructure. Well, the states could decide what roads, what bridges, what parks, what schools, you name it, they think need to be fixed or, or replaced or something like that. Instead of having, you know, those bureaucrats in Washington, everybody hates doing this, Let the states use their own money, the money they're currently spending on Medicaid, the huge sums, the biggest amount of money in their budget. Use it for things for that state. Everybody's got to love that idea. And I said this would make the governors deliriously happy. Do you think there's any governor out there, Republican, Democrat, Independent, you name it, who would say, nah, I want to keep on paying for the Medicaid costs because, you know, I just like doing that. No, I don't, I, I don't think we're, we're going to have a lot of takers on that, but I think we're going to have 100% takers on the idea of letting the states use their Medicaid money for, the states, for, the, for what they need in their states. Now imagine how the elders will do if instead of shelling out the money for their, their share of the Medicare premium, the Part B Medicare, and if you're, if you're retired and you get a Social Security check, you know what I'm talking about. The Medicare people take a chunk of your Social Security check every month. Plus, you know, Medicare is great, but it has deductibles too, and a lot of people end up buying Medicare supplement plans. And when you add it all up, it's hundreds of dollars. Plus, elders are paying for a lot of their drugs. drugs. You know, they hit the donut hole, or it's within a deductible or a copay. And that money should be in their pockets. We're not talking about people who are loaded. We're talking about the greatest generation, people who have retired, maybe they had a, a reasonable nest egg, but it gets blown very fast with health care costs. And if, if, the, if the deductibles and co-pays, et cetera, the premiums all go away instantly, elders will be that much better off. Families. Families would not only have the security of knowing they have access to health care for themselves and their children, but the thousands of dollars they've been spending on premiums, you know, maybe they don't pay it directly, but if, they, if their employer provides health care insurance in most cases, the employer wants the employee to chip in. 
And in, in even more cases, if the employee wants to include their spouse or their kids, well, now they really have to kick in. Well, imagine that that money comes home in the paycheck instead. Imagine that you don't have to pay co-pays and deductibles. And instead, you have that money to, God forbid, save or, even better, spend on things for your house, buy a house, pay down your mortgage, pay down your debt, and start to rebuild that middle-class economy that was so devastated during the recession. These are things that can happen all very quickly when people aren't having to reach into their pocket in this incredibly inefficient way and and pay for health care costs. But now, so let's get to the, the important part. Isn't this going to just cost too much? How can the United States afford it? Isn't Medicare already going broke? I go, okay. I already asked it for you. Look, the answer is there are all sorts of ways to find the money to pay for such a comprehensive boost to our economy and to every American of every age. The cost efficiencies alone will dramatically lower the cost of health care. 20% savings is not an unreasonable estimate. That's $600 billion with a B right there. Increased employment. When you suddenly have lots of people, and we're talking about tens of millions of people who currently don't have any insurance at all, and we're, if you're talking about 30, 40, 50 million people who, who may have an insurance card in their wallet, but they don't use it because they can't afford the copays and deductibles, when you start having those people seeking the care that they have deferred, now you need to have somebody provide that care. It's a huge jobs bill. A single-payer plan, Medicare for All, whatever you want to call it, is a huge jobs bill. How do you pay for it? There's all sorts of ways. It's not impossible. It's absolutely possible once you decide it's important enough to do. One idea, a simple sales tax of 5% dedicated to, to health care. This would not apply to basics like food and clothing and rent. If your family spends 30000 a year on taxable stuff, that would be about $120 a month. Now, that's way less than most of you are spending now. Another idea is to have uh, businesses that, that gross over $5 million a year. Let them pay 3 or 4% gross receipts tax. They in also will be better off because right now they're paying a huge amount for uh, group health insurance. And that cost goes up every year, and they don't even know how much it's going to be. They've got a huge cost for managing all that. You know, come up with your own ideas, but first, just savor the thought. Savor the thought of solving our health care crisis once and for all, and at the same time, all at the same time, solving all these problems. So there's something for you to think about while you're watching the people torture themselves in Washington. Just ask yourself, why don't they do this? Why don't they do this? Okay, now we're going to come back, and we're going to talk about opioids again, as we do from time to time. But this time we have some good news. We have some very bright guys who are trying to reduce the amount of opioids used in surgery. So you will want to hear that, particularly if you're having surgery sometime soon. This is Steve Larchuk, Healthcare Politics. Often, when world powers pick fights with seemingly powerless countries, they learn that even small dogs have sharp teeth, as President Trump is finding out in his ill-fated war with Mexico. His scheme to wall off Mexico is collapsing. 
because most people here in the U.S. think it's stupid. Some two-thirds of the public say they just won't buy his $21 billion boondoggle. But Mexicans are the ones blunting Trump's other major attack on them, an attempt to slap a 20% border tax on products shipped into the U.S. Nobody knows more about trade than me, the Donald crowed during his presidential run. Narcissistic hyperbole aside, it turns out that Mexican farmers do know a lot more about corn than he does, and they know that a lot of U.S.-Mexico trade consists of corn. Until NAFTA, Mexico was a corn exporter, but such grain trading giants as Cargill wrote provisions into NAFTA to rig the rules to let them grab Mexico's corn market. This drove hundreds of thousands of Mexican producers out of business and made Mexico, where corn originated, dependent on imports from the U.S. But now, Mexicans are turning that imported corn into a political weapon against Trump's trade bluster. Rather than buy from the U.S., they're negotiating to import corn from Brazil. And even more significant, they're planning to invest in their own farmers to make Mexico self-sufficient again in this important crop. Their counteroffensive has caused apoplexy among congressional Republicans from the U.S. Corn Belt. About 75% of Iowa's corn, for example, goes to Mexico, and losing that market would devastate Iowa's economy. This is Jim Hightower saying, so the little dog bit Trump on the rump, and the big dog has now backed away from his border tax idea, having learned that even farmers know more about trade than he does. I wasn't prepared to be a caregiver to mom. I had no idea how hard it would be and what I would need to know. Things I never thought of, like how to improve her mood and ways for me to stay positive. Luckily, I found the Caregiving Resource Center from AARP. It had articles about the basics, but also information about the hurdles I was facing. Caregiving Resource Center at aarp.org caregiving. Articles, tips, and tools to help you both care for your loved one and care for yourself. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. The International Union of Operating Engineers Local 66 works with builders and contractors to build a better community. Local 66's tradesmen and women have received the specialty training needed to meet the complex challenges of any project, making them the most capable workforce in the region. From schools, highways, and pipeline projects to casinos and arenas, the operating engineers build any job, large or small. For over 100 years, Local 66 has provided superior service that our community can count on. They are your one-stop resource for qualified and productive operating engineers and heavy equipment mechanics. To learn more about the benefits of organized labor and more information about the International Union of Operating Engineers Local 66, go to www.iuoe66.org. That's www.iuoe66.org. And welcome back, everyone, to Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. And we are going to invest the rest of the program discussing opioid-free surgery. Sooner or later, all of us need surgery or someone we love needs surgery. And that is why you really need to listen to this show. Uh, as you know, there's an opioid crisis, and this year alone, uh, we're unfortunately expecting that more people will die from drug overdoses, pr- principally opioid-related drug overdoses, than die during all of the 10 years of the Vietnam War in battle. Uh, but there will be no monuments like there is in Vietnam or in Washington for the Vietnam uh, deaths. 
drug addiction is more than an epidemic. It's just devastating all walks of life. Uh, it afflicts the rich and the poor, the young and the old. And politicians um, do not seem to care uh, beyond some sympathetic nods and paltry appropriations. In Washington, they're fighting tooth and nail over whether we, we can spare uh, the money necessary for opioid addiction treatments. And there's, a, of course, a never-ending campaign to reduce or cut to slash uh, Medicaid funding, which is where uh, much of the drug treatment money comes from. Uh, we have situations where uh, doctors are giving out scripts, not all doctors, of course, but, but a few are giving out prescriptions for opioids. Uh, it's just part of a criminal enterprise. It's, there's a lot of money in it. Uh, and we have devoted some shows to the opioid crisis, and mostly it's been of the woe is us variety. And so I'm very happy to change that up a little bit. This week, we welcome two healthcare providers who are part of a movement to reduce the role of opioids, uh, to try and avoid opioid dependencies that sometimes start with surgery. In other words, it's all too common that somebody who does not have an opioid dependency uh, gets into surgery, and that's where it starts, maybe the pain management after the surgery. But, but it's, it's something that really doesn't have to happen. And so the, my two guests uh, have formed an organization called the Society for Opioid-Free Surgery. We call it SOFA. Once again, that's the Society for Opioid-Free Surgery. Joining us by telephone from Kentucky and from Ohio are Tom Barabo and Jeffrey Moulter. They are co-founders and board members of the Society for Opioid-Free Anesthesia. Uh, they're both certified registered nurse anesthetists. Tom, who is uh, on the phone from Lexington, Kentucky, I think, I graduated from Case Western University's nurse anesthesia program, and he lectures all around the country on opioid-free anesthesia and enhanced recovery uh, protocols uh, after surgery, ultrasound-guided regional anesthesia, point-of-care ultrasound. These are, these are the newest, mo most modern approaches they try and get us away from opioids, as, as he'll discuss in just a minute. Uh, he is a member of the American Association of Nurse Anesthetists and the Kentucky Association of Nurse Anesthetists. Jeffrey is uh, on the phone from Findlay, Ohio, and he's also a graduate of Case Western Reserve. Uh, he also has a master's in business administration and has served on four surgical missions tri trips to Haiti. Uh, he has been the past president of the Ohio State Association of Nurse Anesthetists and is a member of other professional organizations and has been published in various journals. And gentlemen, thank you both for taking time out of your, your surgical days to chat with us. Tom, I want to start with you if I can. For those who do not know what certified registered nurse anesthetists do, can you give us a sense of where people like you and Jeff fit in to patient care? Sure, Steve. Um, certified registered nurse anesthetists uh, are actually the first uh, anesthesia professionals in this country. We've been giving anesthesia since around the time of the Civil War. Um, and our role is to see the, sa the patient safely through the, the surgical process. We meet with our patients beforehand, 
go over their health history uh, and create a plan that takes into account their health problems, the type of surgery being done. We're there in the operating room with them, making sure that they're comfortable, that they don't remember the procedure. Uh, we monitor their breathing, their heart rate, their blood pressure. And we're there keeping them safe through the whole process. Um, up to the point, we wake them up, take them to the recovery room, ensure that their pain is managed well, and also things like nausea and other side effects are avoided if at all possible. So what's the difference between what, what you and Jeffrey do and a, a physician anesthesiologist? What, what, what is the difference or what's, what is the similarity in your roles? There's a lot of overlap in, in those roles. And, uh, you know, legally, if uh, a nurse anesthetist like ourselves is administering anesthesia, anesthesia is considered the role of nursing. When a physician anesthesiologist does the same thing, it's considered the role of medicine. So really, we're, uh, it's two different tracks to kind of do this, the same job. Okay. Well, Jeffrey, now we're going to be talking about opioid-free techniques in a minute, but let's talk about the traditional way uh, that anesthesia has been done and, and pain management. How, what is the tried-and-true established program? Uh, thanks, Steve. Uh, this is Jeff. Um, well, traditionally, many of us have gone through our training programs in anesthesia and we're taught to administer uh, opioids to patients when they're having surgical procedures because opioids um, could blunt the uh, responses to pain. Um, opioids are um, a very uh, cheap medication. Um, so many of us, when we've gone through our training, we were taught to uh, use opioids as the first line of, uh, of, of pain management. Um, unfortunately, over time, we're realizing that uh, that may not have been the best way of doing things. So we're, we're kind of switching the, uh, the paradigm here and uh, making opioids the last option for treating pain. Well, Tom, let's get, turn back to you. What's the problem with uh, these, the standard method? I mean, using opioids has, is the way we've been doing it for decades and decades. What, what is it about that that has caused you some concern? Sure, Steve. Uh, this is Tom. Really, there's, uh, there's four big problems with using opioids uh, in the surgical field like that. Uh, the first big problem with opioids is that they blunt our ability to breathe. Uh, you know, they, they're sedative, but also they slow down our breathing. And as our patient population gets older, it gets sicker, and it gets more obese, the amount of opioids we can give uh, has dramatically decreased in the past couple decades. Um, so our ability to actually treat pain is dependent upon the patient's ability to breathe. And, you know, like I said, as our patients are getting older and sicker and more obese, we're less able to treat their pain with the opioids. Okay. Uh, the second is what we've learned over the, over those decades is that, uh, opioids become less effective the more you use them. 
And so not only does your body become tolerant to them very quickly, but also they also have sort of this paradoxical effect where as the, the pain control wears off, you actually have an increase in your response to the pain afterwards. So not only does with every dose of opioids that you give, does the patient, does that drug become less effective for the patient, but their pain goes up as well. Tom, I'm going to interrupt you for just a second, Tom. We're going to have to take a break, and we're going to pick up with the other two reasons uh, in just a second when we come back from the break. And in our next segment, what we're going to do is talk about the different approach, the opioid-free or or opioid-last approach. So we're going to take a short break. This is Steve Larchuk, Healthcare Politics. You're listening to Win Workers Independent News, a diversified media enterprises production. I'm Doug Cunningham. Nurses at Bay State Franklin Medical Center in Massachusetts are fighting to win a new labor contract following an unprecedented preemptive lockout of nurses. A bargaining session was held Friday but got nowhere, and no new sessions are scheduled. At issue is not just labor issues for nurses, but who controls patient care. At Bay State Franklin, it's a corporation and not doctors and nurses. Joe Markman is Associate Communications Director for the Massachusetts Nurses Association. Nurses concerned over safe patient care are hitting a corporate wall of resistance when it comes to safe nurse-to-patient staffing ratios. The hospital has really failed to bargain in good faith. They've failed to you know, provide information that the nurses have requested, information they're legally obligated to provide. They've failed to bargain over mandatory subjects like a nurse's workload and the staffing situation, health insurance for nurses. Those are the two top issues for the nurses, and the parent corporation based in health has just refused to negotiate over those. The nurses have been trying to reach a new labor agreement since last fall, so they called a one-day strike June 26th. Bay State pulled a pre preemptive lockout, barring the nurses from coming to work June 25th into June 28th. Markman says what's happening to these nurses at Bay State Franklin Medical Center is a result of health care being in the hands of corporations rather than in the hands of medical professionals. Healthcare has really become a corporation-based model, and the focus really turns to maintaining certain profit margins and having enough profit, even though they're a nonprofit. A lot of the executives make high six- or seven-figure salaries. There's a special retirement account for high-paid executives within the Bay State health system. So money is going towards things like that, even though it's a nonprofit, and that money really should be going back in and being reinvested into the staff and nurses and the patient care. Wins Joanne Powers has more labor news. Well, last week, the Trump administration celebrated Made in America Week. The president has come under fire for his private club in Palm Beach, Florida, looking to hire more low-wage foreign workers. The Mar-a-Lago Resort, referred to by the president as his Southern White House, has requested 70 temporary seasonal visas to hire foreign nationals as cooks, maids, and servers, supposedly jobs that American workers are unwilling to do. While Trump ran for president on a campaign heavy in anti-immigrant rhetoric and urging industry to buy American and hire American, the administration lifted the annual cap last week, allowing 15,000 additional H-2B guest workers. Critics of the H-2B visa program, such as the AFL-CIO, say that the program displaces American workers and depresses wages. Opponents are also concerned that the nature of the visas, in which workers are held virtually captive to a specific employer, can lead to exploitation of H-2B workers. 
WIN is made possible in part by the OPEIU, the Office and Professional Employees International Union. You've been listening to WIN, Workers Independent News. For more information, visit workersindependentnews.com. While college and university tuitions go up and up, higher education administrators have been spending less on students' education. Today, only a quarter of higher ed faculty has secure full-time jobs. The rest are so-called adjunct faculty, hired on a per-course temporary basis, often with no benefits and are paid just $2,700 on average per course. Dedicated adjunct faculty across the country are joining together and fighting back in defense of their students' future. In Pittsburgh, they have formed the Adjunct Faculty Association, affiliated with United Steelworkers Union. Adjuncts and students all over the city are joining the AFA to achieve the goal of providing high-quality, affordable higher education. To know more or to support Pittsburgh's adjunct faculty, give us a call at 412-562-6967 or find us on the web at usw.org. Again, that's 412-562-6967 or usw.org. Together, we can take higher education back. And welcome back, everyone, to Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. Many thanks to our national underwriter, Pair Networks, world-class web hosting and domain registration. Learn more at Pair.com. That's P-A-I-R.com. And this week, our guests for the rest of the hour are two extraordinarily well-trained and conscientious certified registered nurse anesthetists. They are Tom Barabo from Kentucky and Jeffrey Moulter, from Ohio, and they are the co-founders of the Society for Opioid-Free Anesthesia, and they call it SOFA for short. So that's, again, Society for Opioid-Free Anesthesia. And we were just at the last uh, segment talking about what are the problems with using opioids in, in surgery. We've been doing it that way for generations, it seems, uh, as a matter of fact, all the way back to the Civil War. So Tom was telling us there are really four problems, and so why don't you pick up what are the other two uh, items that, that really lead us to want to do a better uh, approach? Sure. This is uh, Tom Barabo, certified registered nurse anesthetist. Uh, right before the break, we were talking about uh, the problems with using opioids and anesthesia. Uh, we had covered the fact that Opioids are a respiratory depression, and so there's a safety concern as our patients get older and sicker and more obese. We're not able to give them nearly as many opioids, so we're less able to manage their pain with them. We talked about the fact that opioids cause uh, rapid buildup in tolerance, and also they increase the uh, the pain after their sort of their analgesic or the pain-killing effect wears off. You get a increased sensitivity to pain afterwards. Uh, the third problem with using opioids is they have a large number of side effects that are extremely unpleasant, such as nausea, they cause itching, they cause uh, inability to get uh, sleep, they cause constipation, and also they cause things like immune suppression, which slows down the body's ability to heal after surgery. Um, and there's a great number of studies out there now showing that just by using other methods of pain control, we can actually get patients to heal and get out of the, the hospital a lot faster. So, Jeffrey, what then, are, well, let me just interrupt. Uh, Jeff, um, why don't you jump in here? What are some of these uh, other techniques? 
Um, well, first of all, um, we could use uh, different medication choices. Um, we could use anti-inflammatory medications as the first line of treatment. Um, there's also uh, regional anesthesia, which is which is huge. Um, uh, today, with the uh, invention of ultrasound, we're able to uh, use ultrasound guidance and actually target specific nerves on patients. We then can um, use uh, numbing medication and, and put it right next to those nerves to prevent the patient from, from feeling pain. So, uh, for, for example, if a patient uh, fell down and, and fractured their wrist, um, if they came into the hospital, we were able to use uh, ultrasound guidance and we could uh, put numbing medication right around those nerves that innervate the wrist and the patient would not have any pain at all. We could put a little catheter right next to those nerves and uh, connect a little uh, on-cue uh, pain pump ball that would put medication next to those nerves for three to four days so that the patient uh, would not experience pain and therefore uh, would not have to take opioids. Um, so ultrasound guided regional anesthesia is definitely um, a huge uh, improvement in our treatment of pain management. Um, unfortunately, from what I've seen, is that it, it's so new that uh, anesthesia providers are slowly uh, coming on board with these techniques. So um, we have uh, nurse anesthetists and we have physician anesthetists around the country that certainly know how to uh, to do this, but there are um, there is a segment of our population that uh, uh, is unable to perform these blocks. Well, and that leads us to the creation of SOFA, the Society for Opioid-Free Anesthesia. Tom, what what caused you and others to create this particular organization? Sure, Steve. It all started. Um, when Jeff and myself and others sort of figured out how to do this. And it just started out with us talking with our friends about it, our coworkers about it. Uh, because once you eliminate opioids, it's remarkable how much better the patients do. And we were excited about this and we started telling people about this. Um, and the more we talked about it, people started trying it and getting the same results and getting this, this excitement just kept building. And it led to us going to conferences and talking about it and teaching people about it. And it's just continued to build past the point where the two of us can, can fulfill that need on our own. So we formed this organization uh, just as a way to, to meet the demand for anesthesia providers looking to learn about this technique. And how's it going so far? It's going great. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, we've only been open since January, but uh, we've got over 100 members. We've gotten countless uh, numbers of people contacting us looking for information. Um, we've talked at uh, several dozen conferences this year, and we're working with several universities and other groups, uh, actually looking at creating some protocols and doing some studies on this uh, to, 
better get the information out there. Well, if it's like any other profession, people are slow to change the way they do things. And I'm wondering uh, what kind of resistance you've run into. And uh, maybe, uh, Jeffrey, maybe you can help us out on that one. Well, that's a great point, Steve. It's it's funny. When we go through our training as a nurse anesthetist and physician anesthetist, uh, we're taught very early on that when we make decisions, we need to justify those decisions, and we usually stand by those decisions. So we're some of the hardest people to uh, make change. Um, I've just have observed that over my last 18 years of practice. So um, when, when you try to make a change in people's techniques, it is very difficult. Um, uh, you know, the masses want to see research. They want to see evidence, which is a good thing. But sometimes even when uh, providers uh, see evidence, they sometimes still justify the technique that they do whether it's whether it's right or wrong, they still justify it. And uh, this this opioid problem is real. Um, there was a really good research article that was uh, that came out in April in the Journal of the American Medical Association, and they found that six uh, percent of patients that underwent minor or major surgery were still taking opioids 90 to 180 days after their surgery. So um, this, this is a real problem, and um, we definitely need to um, work and uh, come up with some comprehensive solutions uh, for this public health crisis. So that is why you and others have created this organization, and you have a website, and can you tell us where people can go? We're going to come back to you after the next break, so don't go away, but let's let's... Uh, tee the ball a little bit with a reference to your website. How can people get to your website? Absolutely, Steve. Our website is goopioidfree.com. Again, that's goopioidfree.com. All right, and we're going to repeat that again uh, when I do my sign-off at the end of the show. But we're going to take another break, and when we come back, uh, the, the thing I want to discuss is how can patients... Uh, be proactive. In other words, uh, if they're told they need a certain kind of surgery, should they be speaking up and saying to their surgeons and nurse anesthetists, you know, I, I hear that we can do this without opioids or as many opioids. Can, is that how you're planning to do it? So let's, let's talk about how patients can start taking a more active role in this whole opioid-free movement. So let's take a break. This is Steve Larchuk, Healthcare Politics. Most of my family, they never graduated high school, so I'm trying to break that barrier. My daughter, Brooklyn, was also a motivation for me to go back to school. Every day after work, went straight to school, and it paid off. At age 26, Kareem finished his high school diploma. I could not have done it alone. I see the future is really bright for me. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Allison is perfect. I mean, she'd never tell you that. She's humble and perfect. She likes everyone. She even likes her untidy roommate's weird guinea pig. Allison, wait, are you texting and driving? Allison, no, that's the exact opposite of what I was just saying about you. Why, Allison, why? Texting and driving makes good people look bad. 
Visit StopTechStopRex.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Attention men under the age of 35. You know what really impresses the ladies? When a guy has a few drinks and later gets pulled over for buzz driving. That could cost you around $10,000 in fines, legal fees, and increased insurance rates. There goes let's grab dinner and a movie. Oh, I know. You drive more carefully when you're buzzed. You've proven that hundreds of times. A woman admires that kind of confidence. And you've practiced how to speak if a cop does pull you over. Slowly, clearly, and politely like, good evening, officer. A woman admires that kind of foresight. And what woman doesn't find it adorable that you call it buzzed even though the law calls it drunk? You could kiss $10,000 goodbye, along with any chance of having a girlfriend. Because nothing says, I'm a catch, more than a guy who lives in his parents' basement and calls it my place. Buzzed, busted, and broke. Because buzz driving is drunk driving. A message from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. I wasn't prepared to be a caregiver to mom. I had no idea how hard it would be and what I would need to know. Things I never thought of, like how to improve her mood and ways for me to stay positive. Luckily, I found the Caregiving Resource Center from AARP. It had articles about the basics, but also information about the hurdles I was facing. Caregiving Resource Center at aarp.org caregiving. Articles, tips, and tools to help you both care for your loved one and care for yourself. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. And this is Steve Larchuk, and we're back with Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. I am your host. And this week we have as our very special guests two certified registered nurse anesthetists, Tom Barabo of Kentucky and Jeffrey Moulter from Ohio. They are the co-founders of the Society for Opioid-Free Anesthesia, and I should say there are other co-founders, but they're on the board, and they're with us today by telephone, taking time out of their practice. Uh, there are patients tapping their toes, I suspect, somewhere waiting for us to wrap up. But we're going to take some time right now during this final segment to address what can patients do? Uh, the, Tom and Jeff have been telling us about what they individually are doing to try and get the word out, and that includes the creation of the Society for Opioid-Free Anesthesia, and they're speaking all over the country, and they're taking phone calls, and they're doing what they can do. But now that the word is getting out to the rest of us, the, the patients, we need, to, we need to be armed with some questions, frankly. What should we be asking when we go into the hospital or... or better still before that. So why don't you help us out there? Uh, Tom, let's talk to you first. What should patients be asking their healthcare providers about opioid-free approaches? Sure. And uh, we uh, have an excellent resource on our website. Uh, that's goopioidfree.com that actually lists a lot of these questions. Um, it sort of gives an outline uh, in a way that patients can understand, uh, talking about different medications, different techniques. Uh, Jeff mentioned regional anesthesia earlier. Um, that's certainly something that uh, should be considered if it's at all possible. But I think, Steve, the big thing is as early as possible, you have to have this conversation with your surgeon, your anesthesia provider, and the way things traditionally are, you know, you meet with your surgeon, he says you need surgery, you don't really meet with your anesthesia provider till right before you're having surgery, 
Um, so you really need to be proactive with these conversations and be a little bit pushy about it, too, that this is what you want because it's such a, a, a new technique and a new thing that it may take a little bit of time and planning for your providers to be able to accommodate that. Well, Jeff, and it's sort of going against the grain of the way we've always done things. Well, Jeff, let's uh, ask you. Let's say I say to my surgeon, uh, okay, you've convinced me I need the surgery, but I, I had a problem with opioids in the past. I had a problem, you know, 10 years ago, and it was tough for me to stop using uh, the, the painkillers. And I'm worried that if you start me off on painkillers again, opioid painkillers, that I may relapse. Uh, what, how firm can a patient really be with a, a doctor who says, ah, don't worry about it? Yeah, that's a great point, Steve. Um, I mean, you could you could hold your line and, and uh, be firm with them. And the big question there, too, would be maybe the type of procedure that you're having. Because for some procedures, um, as Tom said, if we're able to provide a regional anesthetic and uh, numb up a particular area of your body, um, there would be no need for opioids. And then uh, post-operatively, um, you could try taking other uh, oral medications that are non-opioid and, and see how you do. But um, it is it is a difficult conversation, but um, definitely starting with your surgeon is, is the key point there. Um, well, one of the problems, and I, I was doing some research and also chatting with both of you to get ready for this interview, one of the problems is that our payment system actually encourages uh, healthcare providers to take the quickest and cheapest way out. And as you were saying earlier in the interview, uh, opioids are cheap. Uh, they're plentiful, they're cheap, and it's quick. If, you, if a patient comes in and says, doctor, I'm, I'm having problems with this surgical site or something like that, it's it's so easy for the doctor to just write out a script and say, here, I'll take some opioids. Uh, but patients have to have the courage to speak up, and I think that's part of what, what you're telling us, Tom and Jeffrey, is that it's we can't just leave it to you, the two of you and your, your colleagues, to try and single-handedly change the way medicine is practiced in this country. But I want to uh, ask if there are any other resources. Uh, Tom was kind enough to redirect us to the website that you have, but are there any books or journals or I mean, a lot of people do a lot of studying, and this is your opportunity to suggest where they can go to learn more. So, uh, Jeff, uh, Steve, do you have any ideas? This is Steve, this is, uh, Steve, this is Jeff. Um, we do have a, a resource for <clears throat> anesthesia providers out there, and um, uh, a company, Western Reserve Anesthesia Education, uh, developed a, uh, an app for the iPhone um, and the Android device. It's called the Block Buddy app. It actually uh, shows various uh, regional anesthesia techniques by using ultrasound guidance. Uh, the organization, Western Reserve Anesthesia Education, also provides uh, workshops for anesthesia providers to learn these techniques, um, the, the block techniques and the, uh, the use of non-opioid medications. Um, so, yeah, we have uh, those, those resources for providers. And Tom, how about you? Do you have any other uh, suggestions for people that are le- wanting to learn more? 
certainly your website's a great first stop. Sure. Uh, there are some other uh, organizations out there that do a great job uh, addressing this problem. Uh, the American Society of Enhanced Recovery is another great website that you can go to that has a lot of information on this. Um, and then if you just uh, do a search for things like uh, non-opioid anesthesia or non-opioid pain control, uh, many universities or other places will have some information on there that uh, patients can use to really start the conversation with their surgeon and their anesthesia provider. And again, I, I can't emphasize that enough. Uh, I just want to leave you with a, a quick story. Um, my wife had a friend last week who uh, was going in, needed a, a surgical procedure, um, had problems with opioids, uh, not necessarily addiction, but side effects and things like that, uh, and told her surgeon. Her surgeon said, well, I don't know anything about it. Uh, you'll have to talk to the anesthesia provider uh, day of surgery. She said, no, I need to know that, you know, this is set in stone before I get there and have the surgery so I don't show up and then have someone say, well, I don't know anything about that. So by standing her ground, she was able to have a meeting with an anesthesia provider. The anesthesia provider had time to find out information on this, learn how to do the technique. Um, she was able to have her surgery uh, without any opioids during or after, left the hospital less than 24 hours later, uh, very little pain, no side effects. Uh, it was very successful, and she was very happy with that. Well, that's a great way to, to end this interview. Thank you. That was uh really encouraging. And I, I can't thank you both enough, Tom Barabo and Jeffrey Moulter, uh, co-founders with others of the Society for Opioid-Free Anesthesia. And we're going to take a break. And when we do, I'll come, well, when we come back, I will wrap up with a few final thoughts. But once again, gentlemen, thank you so much. It's great to see that people are thinking of ways to keep the opioid addiction from even starting. So thank you so much. We're going to take a break. Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. Hey y'all, I'm Blake Shelton. I love that country music connects people all over this great nation, but unfortunately so does something else, childhood hunger. 15 million children struggle with hunger in America. That's why the Feeding America nationwide network of food banks works to rescue our surplus food to help provide billions of meals to families in need across the country. Join the fight against hunger at feedingamerica.org. Together, we can solve hunger. Together, we're Feeding America. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Hey, everyone, let's all stop what we're doing and take a moment. You see, every moment can be kind of special. But they can be loud moments, goofy moments, dorky moments. It doesn't matter because every time dads like us take a moment like that to spend with our kids, well, it's pretty momentous. So let's take a moment to make a moment. Call 877-4DAD-411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. 
The average time a resume spends on an HR manager's desk is seven seconds, and most of them are tossed aside. Now imagine if one of those resumes belonged to Yasmin, who was living in a shelter, juggling three jobs. I had to be resilient. That's something that you can't teach. We rely so much on a resume, yet it could never tell the full story of someone who had to be independent and take initiative. And that's how I handle every project I get. Discover new ways to develop great talent at gradsoflife.org. Brought to you by Grads of Life and the Ad Council. And thank you, everyone, for joining us again for another episode of Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. And many thanks to Tom Barabo and Jeff Moulter of the Society for Opioid-Free Anesthesia. For more information about how you may be able to have a surgery and not be subjected to any potentially addictive uh, opioids, go to their website. It is goopioidfree.com. That's G-O-O-P-I-O-I-D-F-R-E-E.com. Goopioidfree.com. Many thanks to our national sponsor, Pair Networks, world-class web hosting and domain name registration. For more information, go to pair.com. That's P-A-I-R.com. Please visit us at healthcare-politics.com, where you can listen to our past shows. And you can also get our shows through iTunes. Please uh, listen to them and rate them. That helps us out. Uh, Yesterday, somebody told me they were binge listening to our past shows. Well, that certainly was encouraging. Uh, You can also watch the video version of My 100 Reasons Medicare for All Works for All Americans. That is now available on YouTube. Our music is courtesy of Mike Stout. Our booker and producer is Dr. Ann McGarry. Engineering and technical support is provided by TUE Media. Until next week, remember the words of Martin Luther King Jr. Of all forms of injustice, inequality in health care is the most shocking and inhumane. This has been a production of Dare to be Reasonable Media. Until next time, stay healthy, my friends.